Thank you, David. Well, for our guest, uh, just to let you know, we have come to the end of a sermon series titled, And God Smiled. I don't know about you, but it seems like it's taken forever to get through this sermon series. (laughs) Or not. I mean, I could probably find other things to talk about in it, too. But uh, for you guests, uh, just to kind of bring you uh, up to speed as to where we are, we've been trying to figure out how to maybe reconceive our mental image of God a little bit. Because in our world, we have a tendency sometimes to think of God in more some of the negative terms than we do some of the positive terminology. And so we've thought about God as one who carries a smile. And at certain segments and times of our lives, how God can smile in the world around us, but smile upon our lives as well. And to see those from the biblical examples of weddings and moments where people show devotion, an opportunity for grant, uh, faith to be granted and belief to emerge. Today we see it as God smiling upon a vision that comes true a reality that emerges around us. And for those of us who took sociology or has studied history or a combination of the two, we know that humanity has been able to devise a variety of competing ideas regarding social order and how to bring about social order. But I think as a church, we also know that that God is going to be the only one who will ultimately bring about unity and peace in this world. And that we as the church are a people who are called to, yes, celebrate that, but we are called and set apart as the church to also be the ones who help bring this about. To see this promise, this vision, become true. As most of you know, I spent a couple of weeks in Washington, D.C. recently. And I, I, first off, sidebar, I think that's the one city in our country everybody should visit once in their life. Wonderful place to see stories and history and, and to learn about our origin origins and what it is that we value and hold uh, without visiting the White House or Capitol Hill, right? You know, but to see other things around the city that tell that story. In D.C., there are two different places that you can visit that show that, that diametrically opposed ideology of human existence and social order, right? One of them is the Holocaust Museum. Now think back with me a little bit about that story, right? During World War I, a young man joined the enlisted ranks of the German army and rose to the high-level rank of corporal, right? After the war, this young man became angry, disenfranchised by the turmoil that the war left in the German states and the economic depression that ensued from his surmise it was all because of the Treaty of Versailles and everything that it imposed upon his beloved country. He believed that the economic and the political collapse in Germany was the fault of the politicians and the, the rich German capitalists and, of course, the Jewish persons who were all thinking of their own interest, not the national interest, and certainly not the interest of the common working person. So he started an opposition party, had a little bit of a militant kind of presence and wing to it, but for a while it just kind of remained a fringe political group within German society. 
but it began to gain momentum and traction to the point that this person was eventually named, this army corporal was named the Chancellor of Germany. In the early 1930s, Adolf Hitler became the supreme leader of Germany and set in motion a plan to seize land, to purify the people, and to consolidate his power. It did not take him very long to wipe out all political opposition to where he became the only leader. And all of us, I think, have heard the stories of concentration camps. But the interesting thing about the Holocaust Museum is is it, it broadens your scope and your perspective. Not only did Hitler's military kill nearly 6 million diaspora Jews, they also imprisoned and killed gypsies, Africans, and many other ethnic groups that they believed would have diluted their perfect ideal Aryan race and their nation. But they also imprisoned and killed anyone who was physically or mentally disabled or labeled as a homosexual. So it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was anybody that they saw as a threat to their society, their world order and view, their vision of what it was they wanted to drive towards that they figured out how to minimize or eliminate. All for a vision. A vision of a world in their mind that brought unity and peace for a part, a segmented group of people. Not the whole world. And as we all know, it plunged us back into war. Now, juxtapose that with a different kind of ideology of what the world could be like. On August 28, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he addressed over 250,000 civil rights supporters. We took our oldest grandson there. He was in Washington with us for a couple of days and On the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, they have taken a granite stone and placed it where Dr. King stood and where he delivered his I Have a Dream speech. We took a picture of Skyler standing there. I have a dream. And he stood in that very spot where Dr. King stood. But think about that for a moment with me. Many of us have probably read the text of the speech. We might have heard the speech. But I want to remind you of a small part of it, a segment of what he portrayed as his vision of our nation and of a world that could come about. He said, Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream that is deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all persons are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. A dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation 
where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of, say it loudly, their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having on his lips the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and as brothers. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places shall be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. It's amazing to me that we can have that kind of juxtaposition Fascinating that you can have two dynamic, charismatic leaders with such fundamentally and diametrically opposed visions of the world and what is possible. One, a vision to simply raise up a certain people and the decimation of another. I can't see God smiling at that. Another, a vision of all people being raised up in equality and in unity to the glory of God. That I can see God smiling upon. I think what we all understand, what we all know, is that our human visions, our human efforts, they're limited by our brokenness. They're limited by our fragility, our common good and our common evil. And then realistically, it is only God who will be able to complete this grand vision of restoring equality and restoring justice and unity for all of creation and all people. And in that moment, that's when God will ultimately smile for eternity. But what we want to see is God smile today upon our lives. Think of Revelation this way. Think of it as a portrait of hope. A portrait of the recreation of all things, of what God has in mind. To remind us that God stands in solidarity with all of humanity and all of creation. The God who spoke everything into existence and smiled when God called all of those things good. The God who gave His only Son that might redeem this broken world and in that redemption moment smiles upon each of us through grace. That same God who breathed out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost as a rushing wind to give a powerful presence to the people in the church community to birth it and then to watch it grow and be nourished and to see God continue to smile upon that. And yet... And yet to know that things still are not as God ultimately intends them to be. That we all live in the now of it, but the not yet of that completion of a vision. And that God promises through revelation that all things will change. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem will come down. A place where God will reside with humanity forever and ever. A place where all nations and people and languages will gather under the throne of God. But that hasn't come yet. The church still has work to do. One commentator said that this vision of God should be one that should comfort us. 
And when you think about comfort, you think about how it releases, allows something to fall away in that moment. The commentator went on to say that it should not comfort us in such a way that it gives us a belief that everything will turn out well in the end for us. Right? That Revelation could paint a portrait where we believe that everything is just going to work out to its great end in the very end for all of us who believe. And as such, we just continue to allow God to work at that. Rather, it should comfort us in such a way to know that we thrive and live in the midst of change. And God calls us to participate in that change and that transformation towards that vision. To wrestle with these things and see how we might participate in them. To be reminded that disease is present in a society where there is so much plenty and yet there is inadequate provision for the sick and the dying. To be reminded that hunger is present in a society where the bread basket is overflowing and yet the excess ends up in the trash instead of starving bellies. To be reminded that thirst is present in any society where we spend more advertising and marketing on our beverages than we do on renewing our drinkable water resources. So what do you make of this? What do we make of this story? Maybe we need to be reminded that Revelation is not escapist literature. It's not a fantasy for some time yet to come. It is not just John's vision of the future. Rather, Revelation is protest literature. It's resistance literature. And it calls us, the church, to be an active part of that protest and that resistance of letting the world continue on a path towards destruction. That we are called as the church to participate in transformation and change for the better of all humanity. That Revelation is a vision of a world of freedom of dignity, of justice and reconciliation, that revelation should serve as a catalyst to motivate the people of God to be at work trying to bring that vision into reality. And when we do, God smiles. Eugene M. Boring, who is a New Testament scholar and professor, wrote these words. He said, If Revelation 21 is where the world is going, If this is ultimately where God is leading and driving and we, the church, are working towards this vision of Revelation 21, then every thought, move, and deed in some other direction is out of step with God's reality and is ultimately a waste of time and energy. That if we're going in any other direction than this reality that's becoming around us, God's vision and reality. If we're going in any other direction, we waste our time and effort. The invitation of God is for us, the church, each and every one of us, to come and participate in this fulfillment, in the coming of this. The missio Dei, or the mission of God, is the empowerment of every church member for active service to bring this vision about. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is work that was birthed in the church. It continues through the church. It will culminate through the church. So where are your steps taking you? Where are your steps taking you today? Our mission team had an opportunity to meet Thursday night.
we laid out a vision as a church that's going to empower our members to be actively involved in risk-taking mission and service. We're going to invite you to high-level macro kinds of events that will empower all of us to participate, and we're going to continue to support as a church the micro level, the small pockets of passion, that we're going to be active in understanding how we can further the mission of Baby Grace as a ministry where we work with the poor, not just serve the poor. That we're going to figure out how to be more actively engaged in defeating hunger within our own community. And that we're going to get back to taking mission trips nationally and internationally. I hope that we all take the steps to join in on these things. See, friends, we don't have to go thousands of miles away to participate in God's mission for change. We just need to simply step out the doors of the church to go to some places that are right around the corner from us. But we will travel near and we will travel far because we as the church are called and empowered by God to do so so that we might see this revelation vision emerge around us to know that it's for all people and all tribes. So my prayer for you today is is that your steps, each and every one of them, be in a direction where God is leading, that it be part of this new vision that God has in mind for the world around us, and that in that, you see God smile. Here's what I hope that you take away from today, a few things to talk about over lunch. I want to remind you that humans may have grand ideas. We may have visions for great change. But often those fall short of bringing about unity and peace for all people. To be reminded that God has a vision. And God is striving for that vision. A vision of a new heaven, a new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And God's presence fully with humanity for all time. A moment where God smiles for eternity. But God desires that the church participate in that. We're not called the church simply for the purpose of sitting idly by. We are called to be the co-creators with God in this new reality. And our journey is intended to be one of participation. One where we are a part of the emerging of this vision and reality. So here's your invitation for today. In our time of prayer and meditation as we come to this moment of of close, assess your steps. Where are your steps taking you today? Are they carrying you toward a self-serving mission or are they carrying you towards God's new reality? And to think about this. As our new mission opportunities come up, as our existing mission opportunities and our new ones still come up, what will be your response? I hope that all of us, you, me, that we will all come and join in to participate and take the steps that will help and see God's vision and reality emerge. So join me. Join me as we journey together in the vision of God's new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Join in this journey so that God might smile upon your steps now and in all your days to come. Would you join me in prayer?
Merciful and mighty God, out of darkness and chaos you created light and order. When you finished, you smiled and you said that your creation was good. In our willfulness, we perverted your good creation. We continue to do so. But you did not, and you have not given up on us. In your wisdom, in your power, and in your presence, you have called us to walk with you, to walk in the journey of restoration. So help us to see today your vision, to respond anew or again, and set us on the path that we might journey with you. For our hope is built on nothing less than our confidence in you, O God, the author, the creator, and the perfecter of our salvation. Bless us through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might create with you a world of unity, justice, and peace. And may we see you smile.